from WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger in for Terry Gross. Today we'll talk about the latest developments and strategies in the fight over abortion rights with Mary Ziegler, who's written several books on the law, history, and politics of abortion. Her new book, Roe, The History of a National Obsession, is about how abortion has remained at the center of America's culture wars and political battles. Also, we'll hear from writer Jonathan Escoffrey. His semi-autobiographical collection of stories, If I Survive You, is on our book critic Maureen Corrigan's list of the best books of 2022. The main character, like Escoffrey, is an American-born son of Jamaican immigrants, trying to figure out how race and racism work in America and where he's supposed to fit. And jazz critic Kevin Whitehead will review a new solo album from pianist and composer Kenny Barron. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Sam Brigger, in for Terry Gross. Terry has today's first interview. I'll let her introduce it. It's only been a few months since Roe was struck down, ending a woman's constitutional right to an abortion, leaving it up to the states to decide on the legality of abortion and restrictions surrounding it. But the battle over abortion rights continues in state legislatures, state Supreme Courts, and Congress. Anti-abortion activists are pushing for further restrictions with the goal of totally outlawing abortion. Abortion rights activists are trying to find ways to maintain access to abortion. New developments in medical procedures, including medication abortions through pills, have led to new arguments and strategies on each side. Here to talk about the latest developments, what the future may hold, and how we got here, is Mary Ziegler, who has written several books about the law, politics, culture, and history surrounding the abortion debate. She's the Martin Luther King Jr. professor at the University of California Davis School of Law. Her new book is called Roe, The History of a National Obsession. It's about how the abortion debate relates to the way we talk about and legally define liberty, equality, civil rights, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, freedom of religion, body autonomy, and medical care and how we pay for it. Mary Ziegler, welcome back to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. So the battleground has shifted to the states, and that's making abortion rights and punishments really difficult to follow because there's so many variations from state to state. So can we start with a brief overview of how many states have totally outlawed abortion with no exception and some that have excluded the exceptions of danger to the mother's life or rape or incest? Yeah, so there are about half the states that have a pretty sweeping abortion ban in place. And of those, about 13 have bans that are actually enforced. Um, At the moment, all of those bans, at least in theory, have some sort of exception. Uh, There's a handful, for example, like Iowa's, that only make exceptions for um, life of the mother or pregnant person. Um, Others have very narrow health exceptions, like Texas's, that requires um, some form of permanent bodily impairment. Uh, There are a handful of others that also include um, other exceptions, but for the most part, there are no exceptions for things like rape or incest. And there are other bills, as I mentioned, that are tied up in the courts, um, and of course, going forward, that, that's just a snapshot of where we are now. There are going to be new questions raised about whether states will join that group, whether the states that have bans that are not enforced will be allowed to enforce them, and whether um, some kinds of really onerous enforcement mechanisms, especially when it comes to abortion pills, fall into place. So in the post-Roe era, are there any states going with laws that are less restrictive than what Roe stated and what um, uh, 
Pennsylvania Planned Parenthood versus Casey stated. Um, absolutely. So there are states, for example, like California, that have declared abortion to be a state a, a constitutional right under the state constitution. Uh, that's been done both directly by asking voters in places like California and Michigan. It's also been done by state Supreme Courts in more unlikely places like Kansas and South Carolina. Um, in some of those instances, we don't know if those rights are going to be broader than the ones recognized in Roe. We're still waiting for the details to be filled in. Um, uh, there are plenty of other states where abortion is legal, but, but not really protected either, where states have simply left in place regulations they already had without either declaring abortion to be a right or banning it. Um, and so we, we expect to see some of those states become battlegrounds in the years to ahead, especially states um, like Florida that are considered receiving states, right, that are regional outliers where people are traveling from banned states to get abortions. Uh, Florida at the moment has a 15-week ban, but nothing more than that. So even though I want to convey what the world looks like now, I, I want to emphasize that that's not necessarily going to stay the same for long. So, you know, you've written that after the midterms um, that we saw how the power of, like, direct voting seems to be more in favor of abortion than um, going through legislatures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really striking. And I think there, there are probably a few different reasons for that. Um, historically, I think our abortion politics often tended to center on the kind of single issue voter. So that is to say, someone who cared more about abortion than any other issue and voted on that basis, which meant that sometimes politicians were catering not to the largest number of voters, but to the voters with the most intense passions. Bypassing legislators uh, sort of avoids that problem. A another, I think, potential issue was just how deeply divided we are and how bitter our partisanship is. There are voters who may be very uncomfortable with certain kinds of abortion bans, but who also are not willing to choose a Democrat. So asking them directly up and down, do you want abortion to be legal, um, again, doesn't force them to set aside their partisan preferences to weigh in on abortion. And we have at least some evidence that those hypotheses are right, because uh, since Roe was overturned, there have been six ballot initiatives on abortion. Um, the abortion rights side has won all six. Let's look at the state of Texas, which has a very, like, basically a ban on abortion. I mean, it's illegal from uh, the moment of conception. Uh, who gets punished? And what's the punishment if a woman does have an abortion? Well, Texas is one of the states that actually has multiple laws that are, are criminalizing abortion. Um, there was actually some debate for a time about which of those was going to be enforced. Uh, but Texas makes abortion um, a felony, punishable by up to life in prison, um, the primary actor who gets punished under Texas law is the person who provides the abortion. But um, as is the case with many criminal laws, Texas also has provisions that target people who aid or abet that doctor, um, people who are engaged in conspiracies with that doctor. And so there have been at least some Texas prosecutors who suggest that those things would apply, for example, to people who help to pay for abortions, for abortion funds, for people who coordinate travel to abortions and the like. Um, again, we're kind of trying to fill out the details, but there have been pre-filed bills in Texas um, suggesting that there may even be criminal liability for corporations that reimburse for travel for abortion. Um, so the scope of this, this kind of criminal liability is quite broad. How has that aiding and abetting part of the law been used? Has it been used yet? 
No, I mean, we, we're still really waiting to see. There been, there's a kind of almost like playing chicken kind of moment. Um, in part, that's just because in states like Texas, abortion providers have pretty much um, closed shop and either started delivering other kinds of care or moved out of state to, to nearby locations like New Mexico. But it's also because I, I don't know if prosecutors' offices have fully decided how to approach this yet, but we're still waiting to see what these prosecutions are looking like. When I'm when I'm telling you kind of what we imagine aiding or abetting to be, it's more a function of what politicians and prosecutors have alluded to, what the law kind of creates in terms of possibilities, but we have yet to see um, prosecutions in any kind of meaningful way. Now, I, I read that the aiding and abetting part of the law has been used against two groups that help people pay and travel for abortions in Texas, and that uh, they received deposition demand letters from people tied to anti-abortion lawmakers for information on anyone they had aided or abetted. I don't really understand that. So can you explain it? Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, it's still in an investigatory stage, but um, the Texas prosecutors were targeting potentially abortion funds. Abortion funds uh, kind of emerged because it was very difficult um, for low-income people to pay for abortions because of the Hyde Amendment, which bans federal Medicaid monies being used for uh, reimbursement for abortions. So these abortion funds um, have been a kind of important part of the funding uh, reality for decades. And these demand letters that were sent to the abortion funds in Texas essentially suggested that they had been aiding and abetting a criminal act and demanded, among other things, details about their patients' information. And I think this has been frightening for people who support abortion rights not only because of what it would mean for abortion funds, which, as I mentioned, are kind of the only way that low-income people have been able to reliably access money for abortion, but also because they suggest at least the possibility that people who have abortions will be um, somehow swept into the criminal system, too. Texas's law, like some other states' laws, explicitly prohibits criminally prosecuting uh, women and other people who can get pregnant for abortion. Um, but there's also a history of people being prosecuted, for example, for taking illegal drugs during pregnancy. So I think there's a, a fear that that could happen again, especially because there are some extreme elements in the anti-abortion movement who think that women um, should be prosecuted. Even though they're not a majority at this point, they're more influential than they were, say, five years ago. Maybe this is apples and oranges, but when my father was in the hospital, I had such a hard time getting information about what was going on with him because of HIPAA. You know, I, I was in Philadelphia. He was in another state. So it's like I couldn't get information about my father in the hospital, but you could get information, <laughs> uh, you know, but the, the, this group can get information about people who help fund abortions, which has to do with a woman's health. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that these these demand letters remind you is that if law enforcement gets serious about these kinds of prosecutions, there's lots of information related to reproductive health services that doesn't come from HIPAA-protected sources, right? Um, so in the abortion funds are not medical providers. If you're on Facebook talking to your friends about whether you're going to have an abortion, that's not protected by HIPAA. If you're using your phone and you're using Google Maps to get to a clinic and Google sells that data to various advertisers, there's nothing theoretically stopping law enforcement from purchasing the same data. So uh, in a world where abortion is a crime, it's a reminder of how little <laughs> digital privacy many of us already have. But 
those threats to digital privacy, I think, sting in a new way when lots of people are, are waking up to the reality that what was a constitutional right not very long ago is now a crime in large swaths of the country. So one of the unprecedented things in this Texas law is the $10,000 bounty for identifying anyone who had an illegal abortion. Do you know if that's been used yet? Um, there have been a handful of lawsuits um, so far. The law has been mostly effective in, again, discouraging anyone from trying to perform an abortion. Um, the few lawsuits that have occurred occurred really when you had someone who was um, almost sort of performing civil disobedience, Dr. Alan Braid, saying, you know, yes, I did perform an illegal abortion, you know, come sue me, because he thought that some kind of resistance to the law was necessary. Um, but the, the, the model that this Texas law SBA used has been successful in discouraging doctors. And for that reason, as state legislators resume uh, session uh, this month and into the future, they're copying it for other purposes. So, for example, um, it's become quite clear that if you criminalize abortion in one state, it doesn't stop people from getting abortion pills on the Internet or traveling to another state. And some conservative legislators want to stop that. The problem, especially on the travel piece, is that there's a constitutionally protected right to travel. And there are, of course, states' rights questions as well, if you're trying to tell another state what to do with its own policy. So using this kind of SB8-style strategy is appealing to legislators who want to do this because it makes it harder to raise questions about the constitutionality of a law, and it can be very effective in scaring people off or discouraging them from doing something they may have a protected right to do. So getting back to aiding and abetting, the National Right to Life Committee has proposed a model law that would define aiding or abetting an abortion as including speech that, quote, encourages or facilitates efforts to obtain an illegal abortion. Speech? What's the status of that? Yeah, it's another gray area. Um, and that's, I think, again, um, this is a wake-up call for the fact that there's already been a gray area when it comes to aiding or abetting in speech. Um, quite clearly, some speech is protected. Even the National Right to Life Committee's model law acknowledges that, for example, pure advocacy um, is probably protected. But when something crosses the line from, um, you know, just simply providing information about abortion to... Um, encouraging abortion or facilitating abortion is not something that's going to be easy for jurors or prosecutors really to deal with. Now, it's worth emphasizing that most states, or I, I think no state to date, has picked up the National Right to Life Committee's model law. But having said that, there are lots of anti-abortion leaders who've said quite simply that they don't need to because they already have provisions making abortion criminal, and they already have laws making aiding or abetting criminal. So they could simply apply those laws to speech about abortion. Um, and I think the real threat is not only that speech will be stifled, but that people will be unable to get any kind of information about abortion at all. And when that happens, of course, the fear is that people will make unsafe decisions um, about abortion and about their own health because they don't have access to the kind of information they would need. We're listening to Terry's conversation with Mary Ziegler. Her new book is called Roe, The History of a National Obsession. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Mary Ziegler, the author of several books about the politics, law, culture, and history surrounding abortion. Her new book is called Roe, The History of a National Obsession. Let's talk about medication abortions, where you take you know, medication 
to induce an abortion. There's a lot of questions and confusion around whether the abortion pills can be sent through the mail and who can send them. This month, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, started allowing pharmacists to dispense mifepristone, a drug that's used for a medication abortion. So who was allowed to distribute it before the FDA decision and who's allowed to distribute it now? So the FDA um, had already, uh, under the Biden administration, made it possible to, ha- to access mifepristone via telehealth. So mifepristone is still subject to um, an REMS, which is uh, and, and, and basically much more regulated than almost any other medication, um, without real justification. There's no sense that it's actually dangerous enough to justify this level of, um, of restriction, but nevertheless, that's the case. But the Biden administration had lifted requirements that someone needed to be in person when they took uh, an abortion pill that had been prescribed to them. Now, uh, it still would be necessary for someone to get a prescription, but they could take the prescription at home. The latest step by the FDA means that pharmacies can ask to be certified, which is not the easiest process. Um, But then once they are certified, they can prescribe or fill prescriptions, rather, for these abortion medications, um, you know, brick-and-mortar stores. So the upshot of this is that if uh, pharmacy chains choose to go through this process, and several major chains like CVS and Walgreens have have signaled that they intend to do that, that people in states where abortion is legal will be able to get abortion medication either via telehealth or at brick-and-mortar pharmacies as long as they have a prescription. it, it isn't really that much of a game changer because you still need a prescription. Um, and I think as importantly, it doesn't change this, the state of affairs in states where abortion is criminal. Obviously, CVS and Walgreens and other pharmacies have said they're not going to fill prescriptions in states where uh, abortion medication has been criminalized. The, there's another issue I want to ask you about surrounding pills through the mail. And that's the Comstock Act. And this is an 1873 act that outlawed sending obscene material through the mail. And it also defined contraception as being obscene. That was revised in 1936 in an appeals court decision that allowed doctors to distribute contraceptives across state lines. So how are anti-abortion activists using the Comstock Act now? Well, so anti-abortion activists are essentially saying the Comstock Act was never repealed. And not only that, the appeals court decision that you referenced was not a U.S. Supreme Court decision. So they're saying, essentially, we, the anti-abortion movement, read the Comstock Act to say that it's illegal to mail abortion pills anywhere, full stop, um, for any purpose. And so that would be tantamount to saying abortion pills themselves are entirely illegal because all abortion pills that any patient in the United States takes have been in the mail in some way or another, right? Abortion clinics are not manufacturing their own pills. They're purchasing them from drug companies. Pharmacies are getting them in the mail. People having telehealth procedures are getting them in the mail. For the moment, um, this argument isn't going to go anywhere, likely because the Justice Department just put out a memorandum saying that that for the time being, the federal government interprets the Comstock Act to only apply to people who are mailing abortion with criminal intention. That is to say, you know, deliberately trying to violate laws against those abortion pills, which would make it much harder to prosecute anyone under the Comstock Act. But anti-abortion activists who are invoking the Comstock Act are really playing the long game. They're hoping either, one, you know, through lawsuits to get arguments about the Comstock Act before the Supreme Court, which is very conservative on abortion and may 
agree with anti-abortion activist interpretation of the Comstock Act. Or two, to just bide time until a Republican is in the White House and a Republican DOJ takes a different interpretation of the Comstock Act. So we're seeing this argument crop up in lawsuits. We're seeing it crop up in local ordinances passed by small towns in blue, red, and purple states that mention uh, the Comstock Act. So it's, it's become um, a kind of central part of, of strategy in some quarters in the anti-abortion movement. So... If a president is elected who opposes abortion and chooses his own attorney general and head of the FDA, these what we're talking about now pertaining to the Comstock Act and sending medication through the mail, that could, that could all be overturned and made illegal, right? Absolutely, yeah. And we've seen um, Republicans like Ted Cruz telegraphed that they would like the FDA to remove um, abortion medication from the market entirely. And it's not inconceivable to imagine that if Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or some other Republican were elected in 2024, that the FDA would do just that, just as it's not inconceivable to imagine that the Justice Department under a Republican president could say that the the Comstock Act does apply um, to all abortion pills mailings and pretty much eliminate access to the pills that way as well. I just want to intercede here and say, if this sounds confusing to people, it is so confusing. There are so many laws and so many, so many attempts to change laws and overturn laws. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a mess. It's impossible to understand what's going on. You know, and the more we talk, the more it occurs to me how confusing it is for anybody to know what their rights are um, and what the nation is looking like and what direction we're heading in and what the future might hold. That's absolutely right. And I think some of that is is a feature, not a bug, because when you have really steep criminal penalties, um, a lot of people, if they're not sure what is and is not okay, may make the decision to not come close to crossing the line, right? They may be scared away from exercising a right they do, in fact, have. Um, but it's, I think we're at a moment of really um, almost unprecedented uncertainty in the United States when it comes to abortion. That's true of the laws. It's true of the way abortion care is delivered. It's true, frankly, of the strategies that are being pursued by both movements. Um, I think the kind of old hierarchies in the, in the movements on both sides were shaken up by the Dobbs decision and the political developments of the past couple of years. And so it means when we're kind of imagining what the future of abortion rights in the United States is going to look like that, that really no one knows. And the best you can do is sort of sketch out different alternative possible futures. Mary Ziegler, thank you so much for talking with us and coming back to our show. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Mary Ziegler is the author of the new book, Roe, The History of a National Obsession. She's the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California Davis School of Law. She spoke with Terry Gross. In his illustrious career, Pianist and composer Kenny Barron has been awarded a Jazz Master Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, and he's played with Dizzy Gillespie, Youssef Latif, and Stan Getz, with the quartet Sphere that specialized in playing Thelonious Monk tunes, and with numerous duos, trios, and small bands of his own. Jazz critic Kevin Whitehead says Kenny Barron really shines playing solo on his new album.
Kenny Barron on the 1930 pop song I'm Confessin' with some old-timey stride rhythm in the bass. Barron is no antiquarian, preserving old styles for their own sake. The techniques he's picked up feed his own voice on piano. On his tune What If, the plink of adjacent keys bonked together nods to Thelonious Monk, but the composition has Kenny Barron's smoother moves and momentum. That's from Kenny Barron's lovely solo recital, The Source, where he plays a few tunes of his own and two each by Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington's writing partner, Billy Strayhorn. Monk's piano work could be playfully halting, economical, anti-virtuosic. When Kenny Barron plays Monk, he may go the other way. On Well You Needn't, he's a magician who keeps pulling more and more rabbits out of the same hat. Barron had previously recorded most tunes on his album The Source, a few more than once. Musing on compositions he knows inside out, he gives them layers of meaning and an elusive texture with occasional hints at Afro-Cuban rhythms and gestures. He takes Billy Strayhorn's elegantly slinky 1940 ballad Daydream and infuses it with the blues. In everything Kenny Barron plays, you can hear the clarity of his attack at the keys and of the thinking behind it. Playing solo also gives his left hand more room to roam than in his small groups with a bass player. Barron also writes pretty tunes, such as his widely recorded Sun Shower with its catchy descending line. Lester Young used to say a solo should tell a little story. Kenny Barron is a storyteller, not least when he takes his time. We lean in to hear what happens next.
work of a master improviser. Polished technique and deep feeling go together. You need the one to fully express the other. And you also need ideas, something of substance to put that feeling into. Kenny Barron is so fully present and in his element on the source, you hear head, fingers, and heart in true alignment. Kevin Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, the essential guide to jazz stories on film, and he writes for Point of Departure and The Audio Beat. He reviewed The Source, the new solo album by pianist Kenny Barron. Coming up, writer Jonathan Escoffrey will talk about his collection of short stories, If I Survive You. It's on our book critic Maureen Corrigan's Best of 2022 list. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Terry has our next interview. Here she is. The year is new, and no one yet knows what the best books of this year will be. But many critics, including our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, agree that one of the best books of 2022 was written by my guest, Jonathan Escoffery. We didn't catch up with him in 2022, but we're going to do that now. Maureen's review is what made me want to read the book. Here's what she said about why he's on her best of list. Jonathan Escoffrey's debut collection of eight interconnected short stories overwhelmed me with its originality, heart, wit, and sweeping social vision. Escoffrey's aspiring, mostly Jamaican-born immigrant characters keep getting knocked down by racism, the 2008 recession, and most literally by Hurricane Andrew in 1992, which reduces their house to its skeletal frame. But in its largest sense, the you in the title If I Survive You is America itself. Unquote Maureen. Like the main character, Trelawney, Jonathan Escoffrey is an American-born son of Jamaican parents who left the island in the 70s and settled in Miami where Escoffrey was raised. Growing up in a racially and ethnically diverse city, the character, Trelawney, is never sure who he is. He's considered brown, not black, but most of the brown students in school are Dominican or Puerto Rican, and he's not either. He becomes an aspiring writer, but supports himself doing odd jobs, sometimes creepy or unethical ones, and for a while is living out of his car. A lot of that is drawn from Escoffrey's life, 
But Escoffrey went to grad school and founded the Boston Writers of Color Group, which currently has more than 2,000 members. He's received grants and fellowships. He's now a Wallace Degner Fellow at Stanford University and attends the University of Southern California's Ph.D. program in creative writing and literature as a provost fellow. Jonathan Escoffrey, welcome to Fresh Air. I really enjoyed your book. I want you to read from the very beginning of the book, and this is a slightly condensed version of the beginning. Absolutely, and and thank you for having me. This is from the beginning of the book and from a story titled In Flux. It begins with, What are you? Hollered from the perimeter of your front yard when you're nine, younger probably. You'll be asked again throughout junior high and high school, then out in the world, in strip clubs, in food courts, over the phone and at various menial jobs. The askers are expectant. They demand immediate gratification. Their question lifts you slightly off your pre-adolescent toes, tilting you, not just because you don't understand it, but because even if you did understand this question, you wouldn't yet have an answer. It's America, and it's the 80s, and at school, in class, you pledge to one and one flag only, the stars and stripes. Greatest country on earth is the morning anthem, it's the lesson plan, a mantra drilled into you, day in, day out, a fact as inarguable as two plus two equaling four, and what you start to hear, as you repeat this to yourself, is the implication that all other nations, though other nations are seldom mentioned in school, are inferior. You believe this. It's an easy lesson to internalize, except that your brother Delano, your parents, nearly all your living relatives are Jamaican. When your play cousin moves to Kingston from Miami to your Cutler Ridge neighborhood, winding up in your third grade class, refusing to pledge allegiance to your flag, you know to distance yourself from her. You say a quiet thanks that your last names are different. If you'd had any context for the question of what you are when it first came, you might have answered American. You were born in the United States and you've got the paperwork to prove it. You feel pride in this fact, this inalienable status. You belt Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA on the 4th of July, and even more emphatically after visiting your parents' island nation for two weeks in your ninth summer. You disagree with every aspect of the island life, down to the general lack of central air conditioning. You prefer burgers and hot dogs to jerked or curried anything. Back at home, your parents accuse you of speaking and even acting like a real Yankee. But if by Yankee they mean American, you embrace it. I speak English, you respond. Your parents' patois and what many deem an indecipherable accent still play as normal, almost unnoticeable against your ears, except that it is increasingly paired with the punitive. For instance, when your mother says, Una can spill the thing on the tile, but una can't clean it. And your brother says, No, me, mommy. And you say, I didn't do it, mom. Okay, so translate what your mother said and what your brother said. <laughs> She's saying you, you can spill things all over the tile, but you can't go ahead and clean it up. Um, and uh, Delano, the older brother of Chelani, is saying, I didn't do it, mom. And um, Chelani is saying the same thing, but in his more standard American English. Did you grow up speaking Patois as well as standard American English? 
Uh, I did not. And I was somebody who was placed in daycares from an early age, much like Chelani. And I didn't really pick up what I might call my, my parents' language, whereas my, my brother certainly did a lot more. And he was also born in Jamaica um, and just would have had a lot more contact with Jamaicans who were speaking in that dialect. So for me, I, I kind of um, already had this different language that I was using in, in, in the house from my parents and other family members. Did they understand you? They did, but I think maybe I found them a little befuddling. <laughs> and I think my parents found me to be a little bit of this strange foreign American child who was growing up in their Jamaican household. So Trelawney, your main character, grows up in Miami and goes to majority-minority schools where there's few white people. Most of the students are Puerto Rican, Dominican, African-American, Jamaican, and people are always asking, what are you? So they kind of know what team you're on. And Trelawney has trouble answering that question because one of the questions he's not sure of is, are you black? Um, what does black mean in Jamaica versus what it means in the U.S.? I think it's this interesting thing where it's constantly, or at least it has slowly changed over the years. And so where I may travel to Jamaica and talk to the lightest skinned Jamaican I, I meet, and they may say, well, we're all black. This is a black nation. But blackness in that sense is not something that is not going to limit your possibilities in the same way that Coming to the United States, I think for a lot of black immigrants who were part of the majority, racially anyway, when they come to the United States, they experience a racialization that is very different. And particularly, you know, pre-internet, thinking of my parents' generation, um, they had to discover their blackness for the first time coming to the United States. So when people asked you when you were young, like, what are you, meaning what race or ethnicity what group do you belong to? How would you answer? I, when I first was asked this question, I, I believe that I probably didn't quite understand it. And so it would have been a question that I would have taken back to my own parents. And my parents were the people who were saying, well, you're a little of this, you're a little of that. They would break down a really complex ethnic heritage that they either knew firsthand or to some extent it would have been handed down to them from their own parents. But because I do have an older brother um, who is four and a half years older, certainly grasped the context of the question in a way that I don't think my parents did. He was the person who said, hey, you're black. <laughs> um, and for me, it's like I had an answer, but I didn't necessarily know what the answer meant. And so when I would go to school and I might start naturally hanging out with some people who might have felt that I looked a lot like them, what I would discover is that they would begin to air a lot of anti-Black sentiments, somehow not necessarily counting me as Black. So you're talking about like kids from Puerto Rico or, or the, uh, the right, a lot of the, the yeah. Right, a lot of the Latino kids, um, the Puerto Ricans, the Dominicans. And, and some of them would actually think that I was Puerto Rican or Dominican. And so I think there, in order to protect myself from that, I would lean 
very hard into my Jamaicanness in a way that I was trying to get ahead of any eared prejudices um, so that perhaps if someone had a problem with my, whether it was my blackness or my Jamaicanness, they would know right away and they could still, they could still air it with me, but there would be no mistake about where I stood. In Miami, there is a very bold distinction made between black Americans and black kids from the Caribbean. And so that was a factor that was also in play. Um, Some of that, again, is people saying, well, it's just cultural, but then you see prejudices being aired. And that goes, you know, both ways in my experience. The character Trelawney is mocked for sounding white. And so he's mocked on both ends. He's mocked because his parents speak in Patois, and he's mocked because he he sounds white. Um, Did you deal with that in, in your own life, that people said in an accusing way that you sounded white? I absolutely did. My family moved from Miami in 1992 after Hurricane Andrew. We moved to Broward County to a city called Miramar. And so I was in a a new school, a new city, and I was absolutely told that I, I sounded white. And I was asked why I sounded white, which was a little bit confounding for an, an 11-year-old who, who hadn't really considered these questions of why one speaks the way they do. I had, up to that point, largely just thought of myself as an American kid. And um, suddenly I was being asked all, the, all of these questions. Why do you sound white? The character in your book is accused of plagiarism because his his essay sounds too white to be believable. So you must have plagiarized it. Did that happen to you? Something very similar happened to me in, in ninth grade, yes. What happened? Well, I, I was doing a, um, some kind of science report, and my teacher basically said, you know, this doesn't sound like you. And But it was after... Um, you know, maybe half a year of seeing how the other black kids, including myself, were were treated um, by this teacher. And this was at a point in my life where I had a full investment in, I think, my blackness and signifying my blackness through the music I listened to, through the clothing I wore, through my use of AAVE, Um, you know, my playing with it, my trying to speak that way in order to fit in with my friends. And um, there was this, this, I I think it was almost like not just the language I was using in the paper, but a questioning of my intelligence period. There there appeared to be uh, only slightly implied, somewhat explicit belief that I must be stupid because I wore baggy clothes. And because amongst my friends, we, we spoke a certain way. And this was not just some notes written on my paper. This was like a full conversation that I had with my science teacher. And the part of the book that, you know, is fictionalized is, no, I I did not turn in a report um, that that looked like the report that's turned in by Trelawney in the book. But I I, I did have to, in a sense, dumb down my paper or he would not accept it. Did that make you angry? That you had to dumb down, you had to pretend to not be as smart and as good a writer as you really were? It made me angry. It made me very confused. It was among the first times where I started to wonder if I could ever escape the assumptions that were going to be made about me throughout my life. 
And I think it was around the time where I just kind of stopped caring about how I did in high school. You, you took a break from college of several years. In that period in between, you did a lot of odd jobs, and I mean that in both senses of the term odd jobs. When Shalani, the character in your book, um, is doing odd jobs, whatever he can get to make a living um, and to kind of keep a roof over his head as opposed to living in his car, a couple of his jobs come from classifieds, like from Craigslist. And one of them is a woman who wants to be punched in the face. She wants to know what it feels like, and she's also doing a photography project. That's what she says anyways. And her ad says, no black men. Uh, Your character shows up anyway. And then there's a couple looking for a black man to watch them have sex. Um, So, um, of course, I'm curious to know if you took jobs like this or know somebody who did, and whether it was just like research looking for looking through Craigslist and similar places to see what kind of weird jobs were out there. It was primarily looking for jobs for myself. Many of the weirder jobs I did not show up for. And then there was the research arm where being a writer for many years, always looking for subject matter, I found Craigslist was a very interesting place to find people admitting what it is that they desire in a way that they might not say out loud. Or conversely, they may say what they don't want, and they might be more open about who it is that they would exclude. And so those job postings were ones, um, or I found similar job postings to the ones that wind up in the book on Craigslist. And, you know, typically it'd be the kind of thing where months or maybe even years later, I was still thinking about those postings. And so I I decided that I would write about jobs like the ones that I saw. But I had to imagine my way into those stories. I I did not show up for the job uh, asking for a a man to punch a woman in the face. (laughs) It's uh, probably a good idea that I make that clear. But I would see so many jobs where people were either saying, do not show up to this being black, no black guys allowed. Um, And then there would be this other arm of things where there seemed to be this real interest in whatever blackness brought to the table. So for the people who said, we specifically want a black man to show up, that I also found almost more fascinating because I thought, well, what is it exactly about blackness that you, or what assumptions are you making about blackness or what do you believe about blackness that is going to add a kind of value to your life in the bedroom? But You know, I showed up to a lot of weird catering jobs. um, And to be honest, some of them said kind of racially coded things, if not racially, you know, like, 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 well, like, don't show up black or we like a more European look or it's okay if you are kind of of the Caribbean looking mixed look. But, you know, there's a certain border, there's a certain line. And if you're someone who, you know, I am somebody who has unfortunately been very poor, has um, has missed meals because I, I just couldn't afford them. I would show up to some of those jobs and wonder, you know, are they going to let me through the door? I, I don't know because because I've had these other voices growing up saying, well, you're black, but you're kind of black only, or you're black with an asterisk. Um, And so you might slide through the door. And that was the case where I slid through the door of some of those jobs. Well, Jonathan Escoffrey, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. I look forward to reading more from you.
Thank you so much for having me. Jonathan Escoffrey speaking with Terry Gross. His book of interconnected short stories is called If I Survive You. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Amory Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Mm-hmm.